Okay, this is lesson 26. Let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, what are we going to be talking about here? Lesson 26. If we completed all of the major stages or chapters or eras of salvation history, the the topic for today's lecture is the intertestamental period. It's the so-called intertestamental period because there's a lot of debate as to uh, what this period of history should be called. Intertestamental refers to the two testaments, the time in between the two testaments, Old Testament and New Testament. And often if you go searching around online, it's going to refer to the 400 years between the last prophets of the Old Testament and Jesus Christ. So there's 400 years because the last prophet was Malachi. Uh, We talked about that a couple lectures ago. How you have uh, Malachi is written around the 5th century or so, but Zechariah and Haggai are also some, some of his contemporaries. But Malachi specifically is the very last one, written sometime, well, certainly after the return from exile, sometime mid-5th century. And then there's 400 years of so-called silence up until the New Testament and the Annunciation, uh, Archangel Gabriel, and all the good stories that we'll talk about here pretty soon. Well, it's usually Protestants that are going to refer to this 400-year period of silence from God because they maintain that there's no divine revelation, no prophecy from Malachi to the New Testament. Okay, so that's where they are calling this 400 years of silence from God. And that's very misleading. That's actually wrong because, as we know, I have to still argue this in a different lecture, but as First and Second Maccabees are the inspired word of God. God is very much working in history, guiding the people of Israel through the dark times of the Greek persecution and the Maccabean revolt. So there is divine revelation going on in Scripture, and that's that's what First and Maccabees gives us. So we Catholics, as well as Eastern Orthodox, can't really say there's 400 years of silence from God because we know what happens during the period of the Hellenistic age, right? The Hellenization in, in the second century that we talked about in the last lecture. So while it's very misleading and really inaccurate to say there's 400 years of silence, as Protestants will maintain, oh, and I have to say, the reason why they maintain it is, again, because they don't have First and Second Maccabees in their Old Testaments. And so that's why they say, well, there must be silence from Malachi, which is the last book in their Old Testament, to Christ. And, and we, of course, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox don't maintain that. So that is wrong. I mean, that's why I put intertestamental period in quotations, but the term is still, I think, very instructive because it does highlight the fact that there's a lot going on here in salvation history in the biblical ancient world between the return from exile, the Greek Hellenistic period, and then the turn of uh, the, the turn of, of everything of history with the incarnation of Christ. So there's a lot of historical events and cultural changes that are taking place. And if you don't have the Maccabees, for example, or you're not at least very familiar with the history, you're not going to understand the major players, institutions, and the factions that are that are present in the New Testament. Okay, so it's not an accurate term, the intertestamental period, because we have the Maccabees, but it's still, I think, an instructive term because there are a lot of major changes before the incarnation of our Lord. All right, so I wanted to give those introductory points 
about what we're going to be talking about. And by the end of this lecture, I hope that you have a better understanding of who those major players and factions and movements are uh, in the first century uh, of, of, our, of, of our Lord, okay? All right, so let's look at this next section in the notes uh, from Greece to Rome. Really quickly, like very quickly, let's just recap what happened in our last lecture during the Maccabees. So you've got this Maccabean family, and again, Maccabees comes from Judas. Mattathias was the patriarchal figure. He was the big daddy who started the whole thing off, but Judas, nicknamed the Hammer, Maccabeus, was the one who really successfully brought the people back to possess Jerusalem and rededicate the temple and all this kind of stuff under the violent Hellenization of Antiochus IV, Epimanes, out of his mind, right? Epiphanes is what he called himself, but everyone called him out of his mind. So it was Judas Maccabeus, his family, rededicated the temple and gradually, over roughly 30 years or so, began to reclaim many of the territories that the Jews had lost for Judah to, to the extent that in the Hasmonean dynasty, so after Judas dies, his brothers come onto the scene and take the helm and take the steering wheel, so to speak, and they begin what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty. And the dynasty is often argued to have begun under Simon or under Simon's son, John Hyrcanus, kind of a both and depending on who you read, what source you look at, they're going to say it was Simon in 142 or his son, John 135. But nevertheless, it begins during that period. And it's called the Hasmonean dynasty because that was their ancestor's name. So it's not the Davidic dynasty. So it's interesting as you study the Hasmonean dynasty as it develops under John and uh, or Simon and his son John and then their successors, it's, it's interesting because they began with noble intentions. They really wanted to be obedient to the law, uh, and they, of course, were not going to offer unclean uh, sacrifices and eat unclean flesh. They wanted to return to a proper observance of the law, as Antiochus, was, of course, was eliminating their whole way of life, and many people followed suit. Well, as they, as after Judas died and as the Hasmoneans really kind of became entrenched, they began to compromise. Little by little, they began to compromise with various foreign customs, specifically the fact that they are not of the Davidic line, These the, this, this family here, they're not of the Davidic line, and they're high priests when they shouldn't be either. So little by little, they're kind of looking the other way. There's a whole slew of examples you can find in historical documents as well. Uh, in, in the beginning, Simon and John, they're very noble in terms of trying to observe the law, but there are cracks in the foundation, and we can certainly say that. So they fa there are various factions that begin to develop, sects that begin to develop in response to the Hasmoneans. Either you're going to support the Hasmoneans and their rule and the way they do things, or you're not. You're going to fight against them because you feel that they shouldn't be the high priest and they shouldn't be the, uh, the the ones in charge, okay? So there's all these civil wars, I mean, you can call them tensions, right? Not so much full-blown civil wars, but certainly there, there was violence involved, tensions between different groups such as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, we'll talk a lot more about their characteristics for these two different groups in a little bit, but the Pharisees, to suffice it to say right now, did not support the Hasmoneans. They developed around this time. They don't support the Hasmoneans. They feel like they're being untrue to the law of Moses. Whereas the Sadducees are supportive of the Hasmoneans. Okay? And so this is the beginning of some of their political tensions and disagreements. And various things happen and it gets very unruly. There's a lot of unrest during the turn of the, of the first century there. And then so what happens is Rome gets involved as Greek 
Rule is getting weaker and weaker. Rome, on the other hand, is getting stronger and stronger. They're the new kids on the block. And it's at this occasion of trying to interfere and to intervene, really, intervene with these various wars and, and, and infighting between the Pharisees and Sadducees and other groups. Rome intervenes, and General Pompey conquers Jerusalem in the year 63 B.C. And that, my friends, is the effective beginning of Rome's control over Palestine. In the year 63 B.C., Pompey comes in, besieges the city. He also, arrogant, kind of like Antiochus IV, he goes into the temple and he even goes into the Holy of Holies, which was a big problem. Obviously, you can't have some Roman Gentile going into the Holy of Holies. And the story goes that everyone's making a big fuss about it. And he decides arrogantly to go into the Holy of Holies. And he's very disappointed because there's nothing in it. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember a few lectures back, the Ark of the Covenant was hidden by Jeremiah, hidden in a cave, sealed up, and it wasn't ever found again. And the Ark of the Covenant was the only thing that was supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. Well, if they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant and the glory cloud, of course, is not there as well. He opens up the curtain and there's just an empty room. And he's like, what's the big fuss all about, right? So there's an interesting story there. But he does desecrate the temple. He's not supposed to go in. He's not supposed to go into the Holy of Holies. And this all happens in the year 63 BC. Now, Julius Caesar, famous Julius Caesar, he made this guy by the name of Antipater the Idumean in charge of Judea in the year 47 BC. Antipater is not a Jew. He's from kind of the territory. They're cousins of the Jews, uh, descendants of Esau. But uh, he makes them the procurator, the, uh, the, the man in charge, the administrator of all of Judea. Now, Antipater is Herod the Great's father. This is the story that's going to begin to introduce how Herod becomes in charge right around the time Christ, well, at the time that Jesus is born. And he is some colorful character. We'll talk about him in just a second. All right, so Antipater is made procurator of Judah in 47 BC. And of course, no surprise, there's all kinds of political and social conflicts and tensions and infighting going on as well. Until a few years later in 40 BC, Herod has got to go into Jerusalem with Rome's political support and military support. He besieges Jerusalem again with 60,000 troops. He wins and he claims the throne for himself. His father was just the procurator, like just the administrator, the guy in charge. But now Herod, nicknamed Herod the Great, not because he was virtuous or anything like that. He was an insane lunatic. But he was made, he claimed himself to be king, right? And Caesar Augustus in 23 BC confirmed that, confirmed Herod's rule. And then Herod then ran, uh, ruled all the way until 4 BC from that point on. So this, this is, these are the broad strokes. There's a, a lot of more names and dates and, you know, a little infighting going on here. But these are the broad strokes of how we get from Greece, from the Maccabees to the Hasmoneans, all the way to Rome. Because of the infighting of the Hasmonean dynasty, where Rome interferes, intervenes, General Pompey squashes the city, takes control, and then eventually Herod has got to come in with Rome's support to bring peace to the area, and he becomes the ruler, the king, the, the so-called, totally false, but so-called king of the Jews at that time, okay? All right, so I hope that all that makes sense, uh, but what, I, what I'd actually like to do at this point, now that we've come so far together from the exile of the kingdom of Judah in the south and the exile of the kingdom of Israel in the north, however many lectures ago that was, what I'd like to point out is this whole transition of power from world superpower to world superpower to world superpower was all foretold back in the prophet Daniel. 
If you look at Daniel chapter 2, you find the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Right? He is the king of the Babylonians. He is the one who in three waves conquers Jerusalem and then ultimately just wipes Jerusalem clean, just mows it down and leaves nothing standing in the year 586. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has Daniel in among his exiles. And then the famous story of Daniel, the lions, Daniel, all this stuff. Uh, we're going to do a Bible, an awesome Bible study on Daniel at one point. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, a very scary dream. You don't know what it is because he wakes up and he says, anyone can, who can tell me the dream and its interpretation will be greatly rewarded, right? With riches and honors and all the rest of it. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, no one can tell you what your dream is. And he says, if you don't tell me the dream and what it means, you're dead. And they're like panicking. And then ultimately Daniel steps in after praying with his buddies and praying to God and asking for deliverance. God reveals the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're able to reveal this. Daniel says, no, only God can. And here is the dream. I'm going to read for you now, Daniel chapter two, verse 31 and following. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and feet partly iron and partly clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so there was not a, not a trace of them could be found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And this is the dream. The interpretation then comes next. And essentially, because we don't have time here, essentially what he says is, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Your empire, the Babylonian empire, is the head of gold. But there's going to come an empire after you that's, that's represented by the silver. That turns out to be Medo-Persia, the same Medo-Persia that lets the Jews return to Jerusalem, okay, in, five, in, in the turn of the century, 538. Then the belly and the thighs, that's Greece, which we talked about, of course, with Alexander and, of course, leading up to Antiochus IV. That's Greece. And then he says the legs of iron. Well, he doesn't list. I have to clarify. He doesn't list all of these kingdoms by name. We now know this all right, after reading this, this prophecy and seeing history that it was all foretold. It would be a, a complete sequence of superpowers from Babylon, which is head of the gold, Persia, which is silver, Greeks is bronze, and then the legs of iron refers to Rome. But Rome is weak. Its feet is iron and clay mixed together, which is obviously not very strong. And the stone that strikes it, that destroys all these secular world, worldly powers, we know is going to refer to Christ himself. He will, be, he will make a great kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God that will be represented by this, this big mountain that will fill the whole earth. That is the, the, re, the revised, renewed, upgraded kingdom of David, which is the kingdom of God, which is the Catholic Church. Okay, so it's really kind of interesting before we get into some of the big players of the first century. So I wanted to share with you that in chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and this is exactly how Daniel interprets it. There's going to be the sequence of major world superpowers, and that's where we are now in our story. Now we're looking at Rome. Rome has come onto the scene. It's uh, made of iron, right? So it's super strong. I mean, Rome, Rome was amazing, right? They, they conquered everybody. So it's super strong, but they have internal weaknesses ultimately, and it's going to be the church, uh, the kingdom of God that's going to overtake it. 
and the, and of course the kingdom of God is going to overthrow all worldly superpowers no matter what they may be. Okay, so I just wanted to close that little uh, little point there and let's go and look at a little bit more. Hi, this is Dr. Nick Liebisch. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like access to my complete courses, please visit scriptureandtradition.com. God bless.